I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a show about big books and bold ideas. In the center of N. West Moss's new memoir is a 10-sentence passage titled Growing Up that I return to again and again through the rest of the book. Nothing is what I thought it would be when I was young, she writes. Who could believe any of it and who could go on knowing what lay ahead? The memoir chronicles Moss's years-long experience with an illness that ultimately ended pregnancies, required surgery, and demanded the kind of humbling surrender of privacy that none of us would willingly sign up for. People keep asking me if I'm sad, she says. They say, how are you feeling? And tilt their heads and get these big, sad eyes. N. West Moss's new memoir is titled Flesh and Blood, Reflections on Infertility, Family, and Creating a Bountiful Life. And she joins us from, is it New Jersey or New York, West? I'm in New York right now. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I want to tell you that I really... I savored and thought a lot about that word bountiful in a in a memoir that's clearly about loss. I mean, it has this old-fashioned sensibility to it. And, of course, it has a contradiction at the center of it. I'd like you to think about what it means in a title, in a memoir, that is about the kind of loss that you're writing about. Well, it's that's an interesting word to think about. Uh, the working title of the book for me when I was writing it was fruitless. Just that was that was how I thought about it, and I liked being a little bit um, negative about something that people ask us to be cheerful about um, and endure with a smile on our faces. And then uh, after the book was purchased, uh, we spoke at Algonquin about, that's kind of a negative title, how about fruitful? And I felt that was too cheerful. <laughs> or perhaps um, forcing women to think about something too cheerfully. And the book is about fruitlessness in a way, right? Um, infertility. But it is very much about a fruitful, creative, and bountiful life. So I liked that balance that we finally struck. Yeah, I, I'm. your message here, and we're going to dig into this, is, is about life doesn't end when what you thought your, how your life would unfold ends, right. right, and takes a different yeah. path. That's why I love that growing up passage, and we'll talk about that in a moment. There are some pretty serious, I, there are some pretty serious endings, I guess I would put it that way, in this passage of time, and some reckoning that you have to do with what I thought this was going to be is not how it's going to be. That's not nothing, <laughs> West. I mean... <sighs> Well, it's it's not nothing, and yet I think we could keep it in perspective in that everyone has to reckon with dreams that aren't going to come true. And I guess the choice we're all faced with is, what am I going to do when some of my dreams aren't going to come true? Am I going to give up? I don't know that that's an option, really. Um or am I going to, for instance, in in, in this instance, uh, if I can't create in one way, how can I create in another way? And I, it, it moves me, I have to say, to have created a book that other people are reading out of something that was painful. Mm -hmm. I, it just seems like uh, a lovely, organic way of pivoting. Uh, so, yes, I, I do not make light of of moments of difficulty but i do think that in all of these moments there are there's potential for redemption so that's why i want to come back to this growing up passage that i thought a lot about as i as i read the remainder of the book because there's a lot to consider there i think when we're young we think of our lives unspooling in this kind of linear way, right? I'll do this, and then I'll do this, and that will naturally follow that. 
And then I think of as we get older of this sense of life kind of curling back on itself, often because of the decisions that we've made and the things that have occurred and maybe some of the stuff that is contradictory to the way we thought our life would go. So I think of, you know, life kind of comes back in a, you know, I guess I think of it in kind of a shell-like shape. Does that does that make sense to you? It does make sense. I, I think of it in my mind as being recursive, maybe, yes. that we come yeah. back to the same things over and over again, but we're changed each time. And so it's a different experience, perhaps. Um, and there are a whole lot of things that I think we all think uh, are milestones in our lives that we measure ourselves against, and uh-huh. social media makes that even more difficult, I think, and more present. Um, but again, how do we cope with the reality uh, that our lives don't fit any mold, much less the mold? But yes, being older, uh, I'm 57 now, is uh, an interesting point of view from which to view my life and the world, right? It it feels much different than I expected it to be, but in good and bad ways. I also think the measuring that you mentioned, the milestones, the measuring, you know, that experience really changes, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I remember on my 40th birthday, I... I was having dinner with my father, and he was 80, and it was just a terrible year for me. It was before I'd met my husband. Things were bad, and I said to my dad, 40 is so old, and he said, 40 is older than 80. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> Did I, he? Huh. it is, yes, and he's he. <laughs> I know what he meant, right, that at 80, you're not comparing anymore, mm. and at 40, all you're doing is thinking, what what haven't I done that I thought I would have done by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I've never thought of it that way either. I mean, there is a, a an awareness, I guess, of 40 of time passing that is very different from the awareness of time passing at 80. And it isn't just because, you know, the road, the horizon looks a lot closer at 80. You are measuring this in a different way. You think your yes. dad was thinking about that? Absolutely. You know, I I haven't been 80 yet, so I I can only guess, but my sense is that for him anyway at 80 and my mother who's still alive at 88, um they're not thinking about what they want to accomplish necessarily and that that is a kind of freedom. <laughs> to stop having to produce or accomplish and to just be able to experience your friends and the people you love without measurement. Yeah, it's always the challenge, though, isn't it? Like, yeah. w- if I let go of that, what's the next thing to accomplish? Well, then who am I going to be? And th- I think a lot of us who are you know, love our work, are driven through some kind of creative expression or through, you know, skills that we've acquired. It's very hard to let go of the habit of accomplishment. Well, it is. And uh, I find that's not so great for my creativity. (laughs) What do Um, you mean? Well, I like to create because it's joyful. And when I start to be creative... Uh, in a commercial way, with a commercial purpose in mind, I feel like it makes it less fun. It, you're reminding me of, I think it's a Lily Tomlin quote, that uh, the the problem with the rat race is, if you win, you're still a rat. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like Lily Tomlin. That's great. <laughs> that, you know, being being creative just for the sake of being creative, for me, I think... Is the is the sweet spot? I can't always get there, but when I do, it it sure is incredible. I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm having a conversation with N. West Moss about her new book, Flesh and Blood: Reflections on Infertility, Family, and Creating a Bountiful Life. 
As you listen to the conversation, if you have thoughts about what we're talking about or, I don't know, similar experiences that you want to share, I'd welcome your tweets. You can tweet in at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Okay, West, would you would you open your book and read? It's a rather short passage, but read that passage that we've been talking a bit about called Growing Up. Sure, I'd love to. Nothing is what I thought it would be when I was young. I was a warrior from the get-go, but back when I was a kid, it never occurred to me that my hair would be anything but glossy, that I'd ever be anything but promise and forward momentum. No one explains anything about growing up or growing old to you. Or maybe they do and we just don't listen. It wouldn't matter if they did. Who would believe any of it? And who would go on knowing what lay ahead? I guess some of the beauty of life is the not knowing. Kind of sounds like a greeting card, but, you know, that that's true, isn't it? Yes. I, I, I think if we spend too much time worrying about what might happen, we miss everything, right? Yeah, we miss the experience of being present for the stuff that's happening. I will say, well, and, yeah, go ahead. And, and I'm sorry that we're that I think we are also in a moment in the world where there's a lot to worry about. But as as a friend said to me once, we spend our lives worrying about things that never happen. <laughs> and what if we were able to be in the present moment and actually I think uh growing old as uh, you know, I'm as I said, I'm 57. I think it's great, and so I'm glad I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about it. It's just uh, revelatory, but also terrific. So you lived with a kind of not knowing for many years before you got your diagnosis, and you write at one point in the memoir that your body was a stranger to you. I really spent some time trying to think about what that meant. So so what did that mean to you? Well, it became a burden. It became uh, something that felt as though it was outside of me in some way. I had to worry about, uh, you know, I, I, for those who haven't read the book, I, I spent many years with heavy bleeding and then many months with pretty extreme bleeding that I ended up in the emergency room. And, you know, life goes on. You go to work and you go out and you do things. It, I never knew what to expect at a certain point. And it was physically exhausting, but also isolating. Because when you're going through something like that, you don't want to go far away from home, and you don't know if you're going to bleed on something or ruin your clothes. It's it's one of those things where you don't know how to tell your friends mm-hmm. because it's nothing specific has happened. And it's also not something we talk about easily um, or have a lot of language about. But you're also canceling plans all the time and feeling bad about that. So, yeah, it my i wanted to on one level be out in the world but my body was really containing me and isolating me in some ways i felt so it it did feel separate it wanted me to be uh at home and i wanted to be out in the world so it did feel separate for me I I think the example that you open the memoir with after the prologue will give will give listeners a sense of what this was like. I mean, you're in a writing class that you've really looked forward to at a right on on a campus at a university. Okay. Yep. And all of a sudden, you can tell that you're bleeding. Something's happening. Maybe you will. Maybe this will give our listeners a sense of how vigilant you constantly had to be about this. Will you explain what happens? Yeah, that was shocking. Um, so I I already was experiencing pretty relentless, heavy bleeding. And I went to that class just with 
all of the accoutrement in place, right, with pads and tampons and all of that. We we had class and uh, our professor said, let's take a break. And I stood up and uh, I immediately bled so badly that uh, my shoes were filling up with blood. It was shocking and alarming and I ended up in the emergency room um, and sort of ironically, you know, so I, I got myself into the bathroom and didn't want to go back into the classroom because I figured everyone would be appalled. I found out later from a classmate that nobody had noticed that anything had happened, which I also find one of those sort of funny <laughs> truisms know. of life. That, I know. Right. We think we're being looked at all the time and <laughs> – we aren't, um, it, which is a nice thing about getting older. You realize that, but it was it it that was a that was a, a an extreme example of what I had been living with. I mean, I use the word vigilance, and when you talked about just the physical exhaustion, I thought about the, just the emotional. Is this going to be? the moment that everybody does realize what's going on? Or can I really go there and, as we were saying, kind of be present in the experience because something that I haven't expected is going on with my body? I just can't imagine how exhausting that was. You know what? I now realize we don't have a lot of language to share this stuff oh, with yeah. the people in our lives. And so it's doubly isolating. We don't talk about periods. We don't talk about the fact, you know, that 600,000 women in America every year have hysterectomies, and yet nobody talks about it. So there's this dearth of language, and also our culture tends to treat illness, sexuality, uh, menstruation, all as very taboo <laughs> subjects that that we're supposed to be cheerful about and soldier through and all of that. So um, I think when I look back on it, I, I, I wish I had had more language available to me. And in one way, that's, that's partly why I wrote the book, was to contribute to the language and to make it easier for the next person to tell a friend about it, maybe, and not feel so much embarrassment or unease. You know, if if a friend of yours had a condition that was creating internal bleeding, right? Look, I'm going into the hospital because for months, you know, they, I've had this internal bleeding, but they can't figure out where it's coming from. You would never be embarrassed, I don't think, to tell somebody that. It, it, right. I know, not to be too explicit here, but the fact that the blood wasn't internal, but it was external, be, it is what created these conditions that made talking about this, you know, so difficult, kind of that sense of taboo. It's... <sighs> the, the sense of taboo, and I think also... One of the worst feelings, I think, is being pitied. <laughs> and so wanting to be able to talk about something that is happening as it's – you're talking about it perhaps as it's unfolding and you're not sure what the end is going to be and people might pity you. I don't know. That just sounds <laughs> – I'd rather just – crawl up in a <laughs> in a ball and get under the covers cuz that just sounds awful. Um by the same token once I did start talking about it the floodgates really opened up and I heard from I don't know I was I was going to say dozens but it was a lot more than dozens of people who'd had hysterectomies and never told anyone. Wow. So it turned out I knew dozens and dozens of people who'd had hysterectomies, but they didn't know how to tell me until I made it public. You know, I, interesting. I, I have to tell you that I had an experience a few days ago at a gym where somebody I know pretty well mentioned casually that she'd had a hysterectomy. And I had this moment of just kind of a little shock rippled through me. I mean, I'm conditioned to think, oh, do we talk about those things? 
Right. Which is just, you know, this is why I wanted to kind of pull out this this experience that you had, which is where you write, people keep asking me if I'm sad. They say, how are you feeling? And tilt their heads and get these big sad eyes. I mean, that is what you were saying about, <laughs> I don't want to be pitied. But that is in some ways an expression of care. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, you know, that's interesting because I, uh, you're right. I think, again, it goes back to not having a lot of language to cope with this. I think people do care, but they don't know how to talk to one another about it because how would they know? Nobody's talked to them about it. They may have experienced it and not known how to talk about it. I keep thinking about uh, Virginia Woolf uh, and how she went into, in A Room of One's Own, she enters a... I forget which library in London, um, maybe Cambridge. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, she she enters the library and realizes that the subject of every book in the library is women, and none of them are by women. And that until women are actually able to tell their own stories, we don't know their stories because they're mediated through other people's lives. So I do feel I'm not the only one writing about this stuff, but I feel like this is an era where finally, and and by era, I mean the last four years maybe, an era where we are finally having women uh, contribute their stories right. to the canon, right? And they're all different, but uh, with each contribution, it's less lonely for people who are out there, I hope, who are going through it. And perhaps they can use some of the language that's being shared to talk about it with the people they love. Yeah, I mean, it it feels less like a secret. And you, as you wait to learn after you have this episode of really heavy bleeding and you're really you're, you're starting to be quite frightened about you know, trying to live with this, you write of feeling like you're keeping this secret. And you say trying to figure out who to tell and how to bring it up is too much to cope with. And I thought so many people have carried some kind of knowledge of an illness, a pain. And and, and right now, I just mean something physical a painful thing that they're waiting to find out what it is or that they already know they have a diagnosis. And those instant calculations, if I say what's happening, what's the ripple effect going to be of the experience of the people who are receiving it? Isn't that kind of what you were talking about? Like, what's it going to be like to witness the reception of this of this knowledge? Well, Yes, absolutely. And also, I, I think it's important f- to remember uh, that part of the message of the book is that when we are unwell, it's hard to think strategically, you know? <laughs> well, yes. You're, you're, you're exhausted and confused and maybe afraid, and your body is uh, not well. And uh, to be able to think I really the book is written in these tiny little chapters because I wanted that to mirror the way my brain was working when I was so sick, um, which was I couldn't read James Joyce, you know, I couldn't read the a long sustained text, nor could I write long sustained deep thinking, um, and so you know it. It's sort of a physical manifestation of how my brain was working, but that's how it is when you're communicating with friends, too. You can only – you only have the energy for just so much. And again, I don't think we're taught um, – I think most people, when they hear that someone is sick, if they're uncomfortable with that message, they tend to enter the conversation with their own story of right. illness. Oh, my gosh. And so that's yes. a lot for a patient to take care of, too. Like, I really didn't, at that moment, I really didn't want to hear about other people's miscarriages or hysterectomies. Uh, I didn't have the energy to be kind. 
Um, because I was just trying it. to, yeah, or receive it. Right. I was just trying to get through the next day, you know. Um, and so the people who could enter into the conversation without needing anything from me, those were great people to be around. But as we said, I got this outpouring from people who had been through it who really needed to tell their stories. I'm actually looking forward to, to the book, uh, to hearing from readers because now I'm in a better place and I can hear their stories. I'm, I've already started hearing from complete strangers who have found me on social media to tell me that they have surgery coming up, um, that they have various things they're coping with, that the book was a companion for them. I'm in a great place now to, to, uh, to listen to those stories. I was not in that place when I was in the middle of it, though. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm having a conversation with N. West Moss about her new memoir, Flesh and Blood, Reflections on Infertility, Family, and Creating a Bountiful Life. I imagine some of this is resonating with you, and you can join into the conversation via Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. I think... Is it right for me to say that you married late in life? You were yes, yes. How old were you when when you got married? I was forty, so it was right after that fortieth birthday dinner with my dad. Okay, um, I ended up that year meeting uh, meeting my husband, and we got married. Uh, I can't remember the year. My husband will mock me, but um, we got married soon thereafter. Yeah. So it was late in life. So I was 40 something. You knew that having a child was kind of a roll of the dice anyway, given the fact that you'd married late. How did you two talk about what you're, if you did, uh, about what it might mean to have a child or whether you really wanted this in, in your life? Well, it is funny because I never particularly – I was not driving my life towards having a child. I wasn't – that wasn't a goal of mine, nor was it something I was avoiding either. Um, but we got married and we did talk about it. And I think uh, we both felt that if it happens, that's great. We did not – we already knew when we got married that we did not want to try things like in vitro fertilization. We didn't want to – We if it happened, it happened, but that we weren't going to force it. That was sort of the conversation. Um, I will say, though, that that changed pretty dramatically um, unexpectedly when I started getting pregnant. Immediately, I got pregnant and um, – that changed everything. It became thrilling and exciting, and my hormones changed, and the whole world was so excited and receptive, and I had this great partner, and I thought, oh, we would have a great time with this. So I got very invested, even though I had never been particularly invested before that. So so that's that's really interesting because – as you experience the loss of these pregnancies, you're, I mean, I don't want to say you're, you're deciding whether it sounds like that you must return to that, I don't know, what was it ambivalence? Uh, you know, pre-marriage, pre-pregnancy about having children, or has just Everything changed because you've had this these experiences and you've begun to think, well, now this is what life will be. Well, uh, I don't think ambivalence is exactly the right word, although I don't know what the right word is. That's maybe the, the closest <laughs> okay, word fair enough. to what, what it was. Ambivalence sounds almost slightly negative, which I wasn't. But, you know, it – I look back on it all now and I think I'm I'm I can't exactly say the words I'm glad it happened the way it did but um what it awoke in me was the desire the clear distilled desire to create hmm. 
so that uh, as we were grieving all this stuff and hospitals and DNCs and all of that, um, there was something in me that did not go away that had, you know, this this desire to create that came with the pregnancies did not go away. As we finally reached the decision to stop trying, there there was a point where I just had to stop getting pregnant. I got pregnant a bunch of times, and um, some of them were uh, went on to the second trimester, and it was too much, mm-hmm. too much physically and emotionally. But um, at a certain point, I remember saying to my husband, I think maybe I want really see if I can be a writer. I'd always written, um, but I had never written for publication. And that was a direct outcropping, that that desire to really become good at my craft as a writer, to commit myself to that process, came because of what all those pregnancies had awakened in me. Which I actually find kind of moving, oh, right? That, that something... Something something really lovely came out of something that was hard. And then a book that is meaningful, not just to families, women who have been through this, but it kind of brings me back to the idea of what a bountiful life is. I think you speak to that concept as well, that idea as well. It may not be what bounty looked like at at 30 or 40, right? Right. Well, and also you you remind me that um, I I really want this also to be a conversation that men can participate in. Right. You know, if if I had very little language to express this to friends and family and the world, I would imagine that my husband had less language than I did. Um, I don't know that men have a lot of opportunity to talk about this stuff but it as much as it happened to me it happened to him too mm-hmm. and um i was it was important to me to have blurbs on the book from men as well as women because i don't want men to be walled off from this conversation um i published uh, a a short essay in the times about miscarriages years ago and i heard from I think it was more men than women. I heard you from a did. lot of people. Really? I did. And it was the kind with comments such as, you know, the woman I love has gone through this and I don't want to bring it up because it will make her sad. And so I'm really glad to hear what it was like for you. It, it as though it gave them a window into what had happened to someone they loved. You also have this lovely parallel thread in the memoir about how how dear your grandmother was to you, what her life was like, how much you loved her and she loved you, and how private she ended up being about her own illness when she lived with your family when you were a child. Oh, I, I was really moved by that. West, your mother's or your grandmother seemed so willing to be open to you, but kind of upright dignity at all costs. And maybe in her era, that meant you didn't share any of this in the kind of way that you're that you're sharing it. What, what would you say? Well, I, I'm sitting here. I've got her wedding ring on, and I'm looking at it uh, right now. She uh, did certainly grow up in a different era and in a different class, too. She wanted to be a doctor, uh, but it wasn't the right era, and it, she was not in uh, – it was not something her family would have supported, although she did study biology at Sophie Newcomb uh, at Tulane. But um, – I think also mom my mom just reread uh, the chapter that that's called the dove on the door and uh-huh. called me to talk about it because uh-huh. it's about her mother and there's a line in there I think the last line is about uh, I needed attention at that age I was the youngest of four in this very busy household 
And there she was in her 80s, and she needed to be needed. And so we fulfilled that for each other. Um, I think she probably did not talk about her illness, not only because she wasn't raised to, but also I don't think she wanted to be a bother to my mother, who was so busy with her four kids. Um, I think she wanted to be there and be peaceful and be part of the family and not draw this kind of what she would probably say was negative attention to herself. (laughs) I mean, could you hear her saying, people keep asking me if I'm sad how are you feeling? They tilt their heads. They look at me with these <laughs> big sad eyes. Is that something yes. she might have might have said? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, she was a very self contained woman. Uh, I she she lived through a lot, and I do think that era. Um, you know, she was a biologist, as I said, but but she also didn't have language. I know when my mother got her period, the 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 line that she said to my mother who was scared, you know, didn't know what had happened was, that will happen again. And that's all she said. <laughs> oh, my, my gosh. <laughs> I know. So I think it's also right. Talk about a, a lack of available language to talk about things. There was so, uh, so ha- hidden away the the female body and and all that it would endure. It was something she just could not discuss even with her own daughter. So I think uh, illness uh, was something she probably didn't know how to share. You know, to excavate my relationship with my grandmothers who were really, really important to me. So that that's another service that your book provided that you probably didn't even know. But I hope you're hearing from some people who who have had that experience too. I am. I'm starting to hear from the public, which is really nice. It's one thing when your mom loves your book, but when total <laughs> strangers love your book, <laughs> um, it it is. It's 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 thrilling. And our grandmothers, so many of us, as you just alluded to, um, in, with your own grandmothers, they shape us. Mm-hmm. They shape us for better or worse. And for us, it sounds like much, much for the better. Um, these are women who kind of quietly made sure that we could fly. That's right. So um, would you read an excerpt about how your grandma Hastings, you know, again, you begin to think about this relationship. And then you think, as adults do, well, what was her experience as an adult? And why didn't I, I didn't know it because I was a child. Um, we're, at, we're on page 231 Sure, I would be happy to. Um, When I was going through my own miscarriages, I wanted to keep trying in part for Grandma. She would not have given up, and when I finally did give up, it felt like a rebuke of her determination. I've always felt that I let Grandma Hastings down in particular by not having kids because it is the end of not just my own story, but of her hard-fought story as well, and of her mother's and her mother's. Legacy is such an amorphous concept. Why should I care that her stories die with me? Why should I care whether or not my stories live on? Who cares? It's such narcissism to think our stories matter in the grand scheme of things, but it feels like some kind of biological imperative. The fact that my grandmother's hair reached below her waist is important to me. That she survived yellow fever as a child. That her fiancé killed himself because he had syphilis. That she lay in her bed at night at the end of her life, despairing. These stories matter, don't they? My hope is that writing them down here will cast her line into the future will be my attempt at securing her story and possibly mine as well. Still, black despair, she was my best friend that year, and she was suffering, and nobody knew. 
And West Moss reading from her new memoir titled Flesh and Blood, Reflections on Infertility, Family, and Creating a Bountiful Life. Let's explain why you use those words, black despair. That's something that your grandmother wrote about and that you saw, right? Yes. I am uh, the family archivist. So mom gives me boxes of papers that I go through when I have time. And in one of those boxes was this tiny little Norcross calendar from the year that she died. And, uh, you know, uh, four inches by four inches, uh, just absolutely tiny. And on the back, she used the back as a diary of sorts. But because it was, you know, each month only had one page to it, she didn't have much space. And she would not write full sentences. It was little notes about pain and uh, black despair, that she was feeling weeks of black despair. And actually, when when uh, my mom and I both have looked at that again recently, because I mm-hmm. still have those, um, it's, it's a bit of a gut punch for my mom. I'll bet. Too. So your mother didn't know? Well, she knew... Uh, that she was in some pain. She had a, a a back, grandma had a back problem and had to wear a metal brace that she called a corset. Wow. And my mom knew that that was causing her some pain and we got her a hospital bed for at home. But she certainly had no idea that there was despair of any kind. Um, or the exhaustion, she wrote a little, a few words here and there about um, being deeply fatigued and trying to sit through dinner with the family, um, wanting to be part of it all, but obviously uh, struggling to be part of it all. Um, so that when she, mom read this with me, you know, we, we revisit that and we feel it because obviously we both loved grandma and I don't know what we would have done differently. I was a kid, so it's not and mom was busy raising the four of us. We were all in our own worlds as people are. But to hear of someone you love suffering, it it gives one pause, I'll say. Um, and it makes me want even more to share her story. Mm-hmm. It also made me wonder if, again, as with women of that era – my grandmother's same era, would have, you know, would there really have been an opening for your mother to draw some of that out from your grandmother? I mean, would, you know, was part of the stoicism about, but this is the way you endure. And I... You know, would she have, I guess, would she have wanted to talk about it? What does your mother think? I don't, I don't know. I I think, too, it's my mother and I talk about everything. You and I sound like kindred spirits in that way, mm-hmm. that we think deeply and we like to excavate mm-hmm. um, things. I don't know that everyone is the same. I don't know if that was... Uh, Grandma Hastings' personality, uh, or if it was also that, you know, she was raised by grandparents who had lived through the Civil War. And I think that's probably a particular family that did not complain about anything, (laughs) you know, that they had lived through such intense um, and dangerous times that uh, I think she was raised not to talk about things, but I don't know how to parse that really. Um, I think mom and I talk about things a lot more than grandma ever would have, is my guess. But what do I know? You know, this is one of those things, and mom says this all the time. There are all these questions I never asked her. Why didn't I ever ask her any (laughs) of these these questions? I think we all feel that way as soon as, as we lose someone we love. Definitely. All these things I wish I had asked. There, There is something else that kind of runs through your experience uh, as you're 
you know, as you're trying to figure out what this is, what this illness is, and then what what you're going to need to fix it. Um, you know, I have to say, your experience in what I think of as the healthcare industrial complex was was in many places not as compassionate as I would have expected and clearly as you would have liked. Would you, I mean, it is it is clearly such a challenge still to maintain a sense of personal dignity and privacy in a healthcare setting. I still hear about that from friends who deal with this. I'm reading Kate Bowler's book right now. She writes about some of that. Would you would you speak to that? Oh, it's a it's a very strange system that is not set up uh, for compassion. Someone said to me yesterday. I, I think she said it this way: compassion isn't billable. Um, and <laughs> oh my so, gosh! Wow. Or or empathy isn't billable. Um, it. We are put in some ways at odds with our health care caretakers because of the way insurance companies have set things up. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that every person just about who becomes a doctor or a nurse goes into it with uh, altruism and Absolutely. A, a real desire mm. to help. But the way things are set up – make that very hard because you have to keep moving and they're worried about being sued. And so there were a lot of times where I realized I want my nurse or doctor to like me. I want them to care about me the way that they might care for someone they loved. Mm -hmm. And I want them to, as busy as I know they are, I want them to see me as fully human and not just the 18th person that they've seen this morning um, and someone that they are maybe either worried they're going to be sued by or um, uh, rushing through because they're behind schedule. This puts us at odds in a way that I just think is so sad because that's not what nurses and doctors want to be to us and it's not what we want from them. But there's, uh, it seems right now with the state of medicine that that is in some ways inevitable. So there's a question that I've asked a lot of writers, and I think you're a good person for this. Um, I I wonder if you have bookshelves in the place in which you live, and if I were there with you and we walked up to the bookshelf, if you'd be able to say that book right there, the one that has meant the most, the one that's the most dog-eared, the one that I pull out, besides your grandmother's uh, journal <laughs> or diary. <laughs> I, um, you know, is there is there a book that, you know, is meaningful in that way to you? You know, that's, that is an impossible question. <laughs> so many books ha- are such intimate, dear friends of mine. I can name a few. Okay. For instance, the first book I ever read by myself was Harriet the Spy. (laughs) And it just so happened that uh, the protagonist was a girl, which seems very lucky Uh uh, that I was able to sort of, and a writer of all things. Um, My dad used to read to me at night, every night. And by the time I was nine, we were reading Dickens, of all things. And Jeez. so David Copperfield has a huge place in my life as well. Um, you know, I've gone back to that and to characters from that book a lot, just for a number of reasons, as a writer and as a reader. And then there are also books now, like there's a great book, came out a few years ago by uh, someone who was getting her MD, um, named Christine Montrose. She also had a PhD, I think, in poetry, if that's possible. Oh. Maybe it was an MFA. Wow. But she wrote about her year in the cadaver lab. Mm-hmm. It's a stunning book, and I've read it several times, and I've taught that book. Um, you know, it's it's the intersection of 
the humanities and science, right? Poetry and medicine. It seems like that's the sweet spot um, of of where we want our clinicians to be when they're talking to us. We want them to be poets, right? Um, or or to be able to think of us as needing that kind of attention that a poem needs. Um, so I guess those are the ones that, well, that come to a, mind. It's a wonderful collection, <laughs> Wes. Harriet the Spy, oh. Dickens, and then the the oh. intersection between poetry and medicine. I love that. Yeah. Is, is it yeah. your dad for whom uh, box cello adagio number one was important? I don't know. It, no, it was my dad was a, a, a classical music radio announcer uh, for decades 50 something years so he did love classical music but i don't know how i first listened to bach's uh, cello adagio but uh it was it was a uh it became important to me um there's something about cello music isn't there is it just me that is so healing. Uh, it really, uh, that was, I was listening to the Goldberg variations while I was healing, and boy, did it feel like it was knitting me back together. There was something about it that was just pure and simple and healing, and um, I, I still listen to it now. Uh, but so I'm sure I was influenced by dad, but I don't remember hearing that as a kid. Well, that's how we'll close. Thank you. Thanks very much for the conversation. Thank you. This was really an honor. And West Moss's memoir is called Reflections on Infertility, Family, and Creating a Bountiful Life. Mm-hmm.